Welcome back to the Stanford Psychology Podcast, where leading psychologists share their most recent work. This week, I was so excited to talk with Carol Dweck and Matt Dixon. That's right, two people, one week. Carol, of course, is the Lewis and Virginia Eaton Professor of Psychology at Stanford, world-renowned for her work on fixed and growth mindsets. Her nearly 40-page-long CV could not possibly be summarized here, and includes prestigious awards such as the Yidan Prize for Education Research and the Distinguished Scientific Contribution Award from the American Psychological Association. Matt is a postdoc at Stanford, working with Carol and James Gross. He studies the psychological and biological basis of motivation, decision-making, and emotion regulation strategy use in healthy and clinical populations. In this episode, Carol and Matt discuss their recent paper on the neuroscience of intelligent decision-making. Have we misunderstood and underestimated the role of the amygdala? Is our prefrontal cortex as important as we think? What even makes a decision intelligent? Throughout the chat, Carol and Matt propose a new conceptualization of intelligence that includes human motivation, not just abstract problem-solving skills. I asked them about clinical applications and how their work casts a more positive, a more understanding light on why adolescents are the way they are. Finally, I asked them for advice for young scholars. Without further ado, here's our conversation. This week on the Stanford Psychology Podcast, we are doing something very special and very exciting. We have not one guest, but two guests with us here today. Welcome Matt Dixon and Carol Dweck to the podcast. Thank you, Eric. Thank you. Great to be here. All right, Carol, you told me you wanted to tell us a little bit about why did you write this paper on what one could say is the neuroscience, intelligent decisions. And it's quite a provocative paper in a lot of ways. What is the backstory? about how this paper was written. Well, as you know, the paper proposes that motivation is one of the main bases of intelligent decision-making. Now, I had studied motivation for decades, especially how it affects people's optimal use of their abilities, the growth of their abilities. That's what I really care about, people fulfilling their potential. Anyway, Then one summer, I started reading about the neuroscience of motivation, especially the role of the amygdala. Amygdala was often seen as the seat of emotions. I found that, that except for a few researchers, the amygdala wasn't given a noteworthy role in intelligence or intelligent behavior. And that puzzled me because I see people's motivation as the foundation of everything we do and the glue that holds everything together, thoughts, feelings, and actions. In fact, the amygdala has often been depicted as a liability, like a panic button, a fire alarm that derails your rational thinking and makes you run amok, or at best, as a region that feeds raw material to the smart prefrontal cortex, which then does all the intelligent things like computing the value of different goals and choices and making smart choices. But some researchers started thinking that 
this amygdala might do some important and even heavy duty work when it comes to intelligence. So I took these pieces. I thought more about the implications. I wrote extensive notes. I did more reading. And then one day I said to Matt, Matt had just come to Stanford to do a postdoc with me and James Gross. And I said to him, Matt, did you ever think that the amygdala might be really smart, might actually be the chooser and initiator of our goals? And then that smart prefrontal cortex might just like figure out how to accomplish the amygdala's goals. Did you ever think that? And Matt said... Well, initially, I didn't say anything. I I took a moment to pause and take in this idea that Carol had proposed. And it almost like stopped my brain for a moment because it was so counter to how I'd been raised as a cognitive neuroscientist, where the prefrontal cortex is like the apex, the pinnacle. It's the evolutionary crowning achievement of our cognitive abilities. And that was just implicit or explicit in everything I had been taught. And my master's and my PhD was focused on the prefrontal cortex and its broader frontoparietal networks. And so it was very dear to my heart as well. And I thought it was doing something really special. We often think of it as part of the regulatory or control structure of the brain that tells other parts of the brain what to do. And so Carol's idea, it was directly counter to that kind of worldview that I was carrying with me. And so I had to take it in for a little while. And I thought, okay, let me think about this because, you know, I'm open-minded and I like to challenge my own beliefs. And I couldn't remember now if it was that conversation or maybe a second conversation where he talked more about, well, why might this be the case? And getting into the idea that, well, why do we use our executive function? These high-level cognitive abilities like working memory, response inhibition, mental set shifting, why do we use them in the first place? And Because those are associated with the prefrontal cortex. And so as Carol and I were talking, And she really brought up this idea of, well, everything is used in service of what we care about. There's some fundamental needs that feed into our goals that we choose. And then that dictates the means that we use to get to those goals. So whether it's cognitive or action related, there's always some motivational fire that says, okay, now is the time. Use your working memory. Use your, you know, response inhibition to adjust your behavior. And so from that context, thinking about there must be some input to the prefrontal cortex to tell it when to do the functions that we have been associating with it, that made complete sense to me. There has to be this contact that kind of guides. It doesn't come out of nowhere that you use your working memory or some other high-level function. It's for a purpose. And so as that conversation really fleshed out this idea, it was like a light bulb coming on. And I thought, well, of course, that makes complete sense. There must be some broader motivational context that's guiding everything. And where does it come from? It doesn't come from the prefrontal cortex, most likely, and for a variety of reasons we can talk about. It comes from these other regions like the amygdala and others that it's hooked up to, like the hypothalamus, that are deeply involved in registering what's going on right now in terms of our fundamental needs. What do we actually want? And so that, for me, was the turning point at least conceptually. And then it was really a matter of diving into the literature and saying, okay, from this open-minded perspective that maybe I've had it wrong, maybe, or at least, you know, to some extent, maybe some of the field has had it a little bit wrong. 
then what does the data say? And so that was the beginning of an adventure for me and just looking open-mindedly at as many studies as I could read and really just seeing like, what does the data say if I set aside my previous assumptions, even setting aside now where I was kind of being led to this newer perspective, if I just set everything aside, what do the studies say? Both the human work, which we are most interested in, but there's limitations to that that we touch upon in the paper. And so we also dived into studies with primates and rodents, and you're really just looking at the whole picture because every little subfield has its own assumptions, its own way of testing, how does the brain work? And we want to look at everything. And because there you can find what's the common thread and what's what's really the dominant data pattern as opposed to what we think is happening. And that, that was really then the where the paper, it took concrete form at that point. And I was thrilled that Matt got what I was trying to say, but also remained skeptical and was going to let the data speak. I didn't want to talk him into something that wasn't true. Uh, so I just loved the whole idea of reviewing the whole literature, which he did, and seeing where it all fell out. Yeah, that was always the number one priority for us. It's just, we just want to know what the truth is. And so it was always, let's look at the data, let's refine our ideas, let's broaden them, expand them. But it always just came back to what's there, what's the, the data showing us. And in case it isn't clear to the listeners, I am not a neuroscientist. So one stipulation was whatever Matt wrote, I had to really, really deeply understand it and follow the argument to the extent that I could then critique it and question and so forth. And we could have a great back and forth discussion about the literature. Yeah, and I think that actually favored us in a sense because... Every time I would say, okay, this is what I think this study is saying, then Carol would say, say it clear, you know, make sure that everybody can understand this. And even for myself, it helped me to think more clearly, where are my assumptions and like, where am I fitting in the data into my just model of the world versus how can we just understand more deeply what has, what was the experimental paradigm? What can it show us? What is it not showing us? And so in a sense, Carol and I having slightly different backgrounds was a real benefit because in our conversations, it forced us to really find a meeting point where we really understood what's happening with the studies, with our ideas. And it was a constant refining based on just these conversations and evolving ideas and the understanding that we had. We ended up having, um, when we submitted it for publication, very avid and supportive reviewers who kept pushing us further. Yeah, so I think there was enthusiasm for what we were proposing, and so much so that it was pushing us to be really clear about what exactly are we saying, how is it expanding upon the existing literature, and how can we actually broaden it from just the um, amygdala and prefrontal cortex to what's happening in the broader landscape of the brain, in particular bringing in other motivation-related regions like the striatum and dopamine neurons that have received a lot of attention in the past. And so that really helped us even further understand, well, what are we saying? How does it fit into just the existing neuroscience landscape? And how are we kind of broadening it and challenging certain ideas that are out there, challenging or just kind of refining? Hooray for the scientific process. Exactly. It sounds like 
there's an interdisciplinary background that motivated this paper, following the truth, being surprised along the way, updating your mind. That's really inspiring, for certainly for me as a grad student. I think, well, there's a lot of directions we can go with this. But one thing I find really interesting is how you even define intelligent decision-making, right? Because I'm sure if you were to look this up on the internet, you would find something like utility maximization, being rational, whatever that means. But you seem to have a much more nuanced definition that has to do with motivation. What makes for an intelligent decision, according to you? One answer is that we let the experimental paradigms define it in many cases. What kinds of decisions would maximize your gain, that would maximize the rewards you got that were available? There are a lot of different ways that you potentially could define intelligence. And in the neuroscience literature, it's exactly what Carol was saying. It's often just based on this idea of some sort of utility maximization. And and it often is tied to a specific paradigm because there's a lot of variables that could influence what we think of as value and, and the best choice. And oftentimes a paradigm or a study will kind of simplify it to say two variables. So in some cases, maybe in a lot of cases, it's kind of objectively defined. So you could have like some reward and the options would differ in terms of the magnitude of the reward, whether it's a monetary reward or a food reward. So that's pretty easy to manipulate in terms of the size. So just how much money, how much food are you getting for the two different options? And then there's often a second variable, sometimes like a third, but often a second one. And it could be, well, when is that reward going to be delivered? So is it sooner or later? Or it could be probability. How likely are you to get that reward depending on which choice you choose? It could be how much effort do you need to invest? And in a lot of cases, effort is seen as costly just because of the resources it takes up. And that's kind of an issue we can touch on more later. Is effort always costly? And of course, we don't think so. And a lot of researchers don't think so. But it's often operationalized as a cost. And then, of course, there's sometimes not just the individual variables, but also it might be a social context. And so what, what are the ramifications for another person? And we can talk about some of those details. But then when those factors are crossed, there's almost always in these experiments one choice that's objectively higher in value based on these variables than, than the other choice. And it's almost always the case that there's just two offers that uh, an individual is choosing from. And it's important to have these super simple experimental paradigms and to see what's the amygdala doing, making the choice, what's the prefrontal cortex doing. So these very simple kind of non-real life or oversimplified paradigms really help you see what part of the brain is doing what at which phase in the process. Exactly. We could argue that in a lot of naturalistic settings, part of what defines intelligence is navigating conflicting goals or when you have multiple goal options that vary along many different dimensions or variables. And so as Carol mentioned, to get some traction in what's going on in the brain, it just has to be simplified initially. And so that's what a lot of studies do. They begin with these simple settings where it's just two options and it might vary along say two variables. And then it's very clear what the most intelligent, quote unquote, 
decision is because it's been set up objectively where one is better than the other. And then you can just see what's happening in the brain in terms of what's correlating with optimal choices. Then in the discussion at the end of the paper, we really let loose (laughs) about intelligence. What is intelligence? And we kind of regret the fact that over the decades, the idea of adaptive behavior fell out of the definition. For a long time, intelligence was defined as behaving adaptively in your and whatever environment you were in. But it became more and more about abstract thinking on an IQ test, which people thought eliminated the problem of motivation. But we thought, no, eliminated the phenomenon of using your mind to solve things you care about and to get things you care about. This is really relevant when thinking about, well, what are we going to see in the brain when we're trying to understand the neural basis of intelligence? Because if you measure it with tasks where it's just abstract reasoning, completely divorced from motivation or your real life concerns, or you look at executive functions and cognitive neuroscience where there's no motivation involved, that's going to affect what you see in terms of the activation pattern. And there's becoming more and more recognition that, hey, everything in everyday life is motivated in some way. So we really need to bring this in to our experimental paradigms. Yes, it makes it a little more messy. It's not as controlled as, you know, pretending that motivation is not happening. But arguably, even when you don't manipulate motivation, that's affecting these tasks, whether it's an intelligence task or like a Stroop task or whatever cognitive task you present to people. Because people bring in their own intrinsic motivation or how much they care about impressing the experimenter or uh, bolstering their self-concept. So whether we're measuring it or not, it's happening. And so we might as well think about it and try to kind of marry the idea that, or not marry, but look at the idea that motivation is always inherent to whatever we're using our cognitive functions to do in intelligent ways. Some of the most powerful literature that Matt reviewed, in my opinion, were studies that showed amygdala activation actually supported the workings of the executive function in the prefrontal cortex, actually supported working memory and self-regulation of various sorts. So Mm, it's not this smart part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, taking over and acting rationally and doing all this stuff. It's really supported and, and enhanced by motivation. Yeah, that's maybe the fundamental message in the paper is that there's this deep synergy between a lot of different parts of the brain. And we focus on the amygdala and prefrontal cortex. And that neither one really stand on their own. And our perspective is that the amygdala, by providing this context in terms of contributing to the value computations about what we care about in terms of our goals, it really needs then to have a back and forth with the prefrontal cortex, which we propose is a little more involved in simulating what types of actions might help me get to my goals. 
and doing like a cost benefit kind of analysis. And so with one or the other, if you're identifying goals on their own without being able to get there, or if you identify maladaptive goals, even if you can get there, in either case, you really need both functioning really well. And there's kind of communication and synergy in the functions, and which is really different from sort of older ideas about competition in the brain or dual systems in the brain. They're doing different things, kind of modular and often competitive, um, where one is regulating the other. But really, our perspective is that, no, they're just communicating and supporting each other in, in their functions. And that neither really does its functions well without input from the other structure. In the early neuroscience and in the popular literature, the amygdala was seen as something dangerous that, as I said before, derailed intelligence and needed to be tamped down and suffocated. And one of the funniest things, maybe tragically funny, that Matt found in the literature when he Googled amygdala hijack, he found 300,000 entries and he found a discussion of whether people should have their amygdala surgically removed. Yeah, this was in the online version of Discover Magazine. So that's where this competition between rationality and emotional, motivational irrationality uh, kind of reached its height. (laughs) Yeah, it seems that once certain ideas made their way into the kind of um, popular culture consciousness, it hasn't been updated with all of this research that we review in the paper. It shows a vastly different story. And the most neuroscientists would probably be on board with. But for some reason, pop culture, it loves its, its rational versus irrational kind of brain competing systems perspective. And as Carol mentioned, like literally hundreds of thousands of entries, blogs, books, videos, all on the amygdala hijack idea. So it's incredibly pervasive. And I think fuels this idea that people, yeah, do consider, should I remove my amygdala? Because clearly it's harming me in some way. It's causing my anxiety. It's causing me to think in an irrational way during stress. And it's just doing all sorts of things that disrupt my ability to act adaptively. And so that was definitely part of our desire to make ideas really crystal clear so that they could infiltrate the popular cultural world as well as just being part of the academic world. And we operate on this assumption all the time. So I just turned 26 and I have been told once I turn, you know, 25, 26, my prefrontal cortex will be fully developed. I will be a fully rational adult. I will no longer be impulsive and make all these irrational, risky (laughs) decisions. This is what I have been sold. But it turns out maybe I wasn't as irrational all along and maybe adolescence even though they do things that seem really weird. From their perspective, what they're doing is, again, motivated by certain social norms and proving themselves to other people, and that's why they might do impulsive things. It's not that they have these wild emotions that they cannot regulate yet. It's really more complicated. It is that maybe from their perspective, what they're doing makes more sense than we think, and we just impose our adult values on them. That's right. And it was interesting to find that there is this narrative about the prefrontal cortex maturing much slower than limbic regions, so-called limbic regions like the amygdala. But it turns out newer uh, studies are showing that from a very early age, you find pretty sophisticated activation patterns in the prefrontal cortex. And so it doesn't seem to be as 
violent and non-functioning as people used to think, like early in life. Yeah, we talk about in the paper how really from early on, and this is building on some other researchers who talked about how the amygdala, because it's sensitive to what we care about, the, the value of things in the world from early in life, it might in some ways be really providing important input to the prefrontal cortex. And some people have talked about it being like a teacher to the prefrontal cortex in terms of, well, what should I focus on in the world? What do I need to pay attention to to navigate so I get my needs met, you know, to reach my goals? But the idea is that both of them are working together from very early on. And then throughout the course of development, they really are not in competition, but working together in terms of what the individual cares about at that time in their life. And so as you were saying, adolescence, as they have this emerging self-awareness and awareness of wanting to belong into their peer groups and not wanting to be an outcast, their values are different from earlier in life and later in life, where maybe you're more focused on like later in life, you know, building a family or, you know, building a career, but really during that adolescent period, fitting in with peers is critical for well-being. We know that. And so really our perspective is that the amygdala is putting the prefrontal cortex to good use in the sense of saying, I care about fitting in. And then the prefrontal cortex and its broader networks and executive function might then say, hey, how do I strategize? How do I plan? How do I do sophisticated cognitive activities to make sure that I do fit in with the group or whatever it might be? And sometimes that means doing things that are risky. But in that moment, it doesn't feel risky because your your psychological well-being kind of depends on having a good outcome with the group. And so it's only risky from a certain outsider perspective. So that was like a key point that we were trying to get across. And also a point we make strongly is if, in fact, as has been argued very persuasively in the literature, the amygdala actually leads and guides and teaches the prefrontal cortex during development. Why would they suddenly become adversaries <laughs> and like turn on each other and have to shut each other down? That just doesn't make sense. Yeah, there's a really interesting paper. I believe the title is something along the lines of corticocentric myopia written by Josef Parvizi, a Stanford neuroscientist, where he argues that the idea of warring brain systems was really something that was guided by broader kind of societal perspectives on you know, class structure and just a lot of what was happening socially you know, around the 1900s. And so there's a lot that could be said about that whole historical influence on the way neuroscientists then adopted certain narratives about how the brain works. And there does seem to be probably some truth to it, because if you look at the wiring structure of the brain, there's really not good evidence for a hierarchical organization where the prefrontal cortex or any other region is in some special status above others, where it's kind of in a commanding role. There's really no strong evidence for that. Most connections are bidirectional. And if you look at activity patterns, it's really um, not that one is leading the other. So that's really an idea that was imposed on the data and the brain, as opposed to the data telling us um, about how things are working. And so it seems to be just like an archaic narrative that I think is being more and more kind of relaxed 
as people are just looking at, well, what does the data say? And as you see more and more evidence that doesn't support that narrative, it's harder to have it just stand up on this kind of fictional historical basis. But it's a fascinating paper from a very concrete neuroscience perspective that says, no, there's no worrying systems in the brain. It's really more this cooperative, if you look at really like loop structure, where activity is going back and forth in a circular recurrent pattern between different parts of the brain. It's not this regulating, fighting kind of uh, architecture. There's really no basis for that. There's a lot of people who are suffering because of this narrative of reason over emotion. Don't listen to your emotions are misguided. Right? There's a lot of psychopathology that we blame on the idea that we just cannot regulate our emotions well enough. And that might be true in certain cases, but oftentimes it is more complicated. Yeah, we have a part at the end of the paper we really enjoyed thinking through and writing about how the amygdala has been blamed for so much of psychopathology. Yeah, what's really interesting is that it has been blamed. And there's a couple of different things to say. One is that if you have experienced early adversity, and that's what the information that's being fed into the amygdala, sure, it's most likely going to become sensitized to potentially threatening stimuli and responding and saying, okay, this is important. Let's really pay close attention to this. And there is data that early adversity, it leads to the amygdala just not functioning in, in a normal way and having maladaptive kind of communication patterns with the prefrontal. So that's one thing to say is that if you give bad input to any part of the brain, it's not going to function in the normal way that it does. And the other important thing to keep in mind is that there's a lot of focus on the amygdala being hyperreactive in psychopathology. And that kind of goes back to the early studies that tied the amygdala to fear conditions. And, and there's no disputing that it probably does play a role in detecting, well, what's threatening to me? That's really adaptive. You want to be doing that. And so it does that, but that's not the only thing it does. And what's really important is that what we know in humans in psychopathology is that in a lot of cases, part of the contributing psychological kind of maladaptive functioning is rumination and negative self-belief. And one of the most consistent findings, if you look at the clinical neuroscience literature, uh, I've done some work in this area on social anxiety, is that it's not the amygdala that consistently shows up in these disorders. It's actually part of the prefrontal cortex, the medial prefrontal cortex in particular, which more broadly has been linked to self-referential processes. When people think about themselves, they reflect on their attributes, whether they think themselves to be capable or incapable, lovable or unlovable. You get the medial prefrontal cortex and a broader network called the default mode network becoming activated. And that's actually what shows up as more activated in a lot of clinical conditions which makes a lot of sense because that's at the heart of depression and anxiety is often these thoughts about being worthless or incapable, um, being a failure. And so the idea is that it actually could be this prefrontal network that's really become sensitized to these negative self-beliefs. And then that would feed back down into the amygdala and make it hyper-responsive to any cues in the environment that are relevant to those beliefs. And so it's really kind of flipping the narrative. So it's not that the prefrontal cortex is not regulating the amygdala well enough. It's actually sending maladaptive inputs to the amygdala and making it then hyper-responsive to certain types of goals or certain types of cues in the environment. And that actually seems to fit the data better than the tr traditional perspective of this maladaptive regulatory role. It kind of goes back to our 
initial perspective about there needing to be synergy between these regions for healthy function. And Carol came up with this beautiful analogy of like a broken partnership. And that's really what we see. It's really not one or the other being problematic. It's when they're not communicating well and supporting each other's function. What are the next steps you would like to see? And do you have anything planned following up on this work? We do. So there's a lot of different strands of, of research that we will be pursuing. The one that we thought would be most important to start off with is taking a new perspective on if you look at some sort of executive control, like let's say a working memory task, which people you know think about, if you think about intelligence, almost always we think about working memory as being a critical component, being able to hold in mind whatever information is relevant to performing the task and then manipulating it as you need, whether it's in service of reasoning um, or yeah, whatever it might be for the task that you're doing. So traditionally, executive functions was looked at these tasks outside of motivation for a long time. And the focus was on persistent firing activity in the prefrontal cortex. So you find that during the delay period, when you're holding things in mind or manipulating it, you get a lot of prefrontal activation. And so the traditional story was that, well, the prefrontal cortex is really critical for working memory, it's doing its job. That's really at the core of intelligence or any task that requires that sort of functioning. And then came along studies that said, okay, well, let, now let's throw in motivation into the mix. And what you find is that people usually perform better when they're motivated, whether it's by money or like a, a social incentive, like praise versus criticism. And what you find is amplified activity in the prefrontal cortex. And oftentimes during the presentation of a motivational incentive, like before the task, you get activation in motivation circuits and sometimes including the amygdala. And then it oftentimes goes silent during the performance of the task. So it's almost saying like, okay, here's, we can earn a monetary reward. And the idea is that that would then amp up your prefrontal activation that then does the working memory or whatever you're doing. And, but the motivation kind of part in terms of like the amygdala or the, the ventral striatum kind of goes silent during the actual critical task performance period. And we don't believe that this is true. Based on our perspective, we think that you need constant input from the amygdala. Say, I still care about this task. So it needs to be sending a signal to the prefrontal cortex saying, keep going, keep holding that in mind, the information, keep performing well throughout the entire duration of the task. But if that's the case, why are we not seeing it in the activation of the amygdala? And our thought is that because people have primarily looked just at the average activation in the amygdala, and there's a whole different way of looking at what it's doing and analyzing it, and it's an approach called multivariate pattern analysis. So instead of just getting this simple measure, like one basic value for how active is the amygdala, you can look at the entire pattern because it's not just you know, like one signal that we get from the fMRI scanner, we get really hundreds or thousands of little data points within the amygdala, which is this larger structure. And so we can look at all of those data points as a pattern and say within that pattern, does it actually carry information about the motivational incentive throughout the entire task, even if its average activation is dropping down? And so one way of thinking about this is as you're performing the task, you don't want to be focused on the motivational incentive anymore. You want to be focused on what are you doing for the task? What are you holding in mind? And so that might drop down the, the overall activation in the amygdala, even though you still want to know, well, why am I doing this? Task? 
And so the idea is that the motivational incentive is still there in its activity, still guiding what it's doing. And we're just, we've just been missing it this whole time. And so this is currently what we have in the works, an empirical study to look at, is this the case? It's a very strong test of our core hypothesis. So that's one thing that we have in the works. And of course, there's many ways of then expanding upon that basic idea and really getting at the heart of the idea that, well, maybe there's this deep synergy throughout the entire task that we think of as tapping into intelligence. It's not just for a brief moment in time that the amygdala pops up and says, oh, this is important to me. It's actually continuously saying, I care about this and kind of providing a context for the use of your prefrontal functions, whether it's working memory or whatever else it might be doing. Well, I can't wait to see where this work is going, which raises one question that we ask all our guests. How do you know a research idea is worth pursuing? There's so many battles to pick. Well, for me, it's when I cannot contain my excitement. Like when we got going on this paper, I just could not contain my excitement. It's also about what Matt said before, being willing to consider anything and kind of envisioning, oh, where would it take me if that's true? I can't contain my excitement. Yeah, and I think there's this kind of brings in the idea that science is not dry. There's really this passionate creativity, you know, spark-filled process. And it's exactly what Carol said. There might be many ideas kind of popping up, but it's the ones that really grab you. And they don't let you stop thinking about it. And there's this intuitive sense that this is really important, not just to me personally, but this has implications, broader societal implications. And of course, intelligence that affects every facet of our lives, the way we conceptualize and think about it. And obviously, from educational policy to the way that we think about how to perform in the workplace. And so for us, I'm thinking about, well, where does motivation fit in? And is there this inherent kind of synergy between what we think of as cognitive and motivational and whether that dichotomy even really exists, the ideas that we can look at to tap into, well, what's the truth about this? And can we see something in the brain that will tell us something really concrete? It's super fascinating because it has these potential broad implications for different areas of society, like I mentioned. That's always, I think, for me in the back of my mind is, does this have something to say about just as human beings, the way we see ourselves and how we're going to flourish in different parts of our lives, whether it's in an academic kind of context, workplace context, relationships, is how can we really thrive? And from a neuroscience perspective, what can we study that will have implications for just how we conceptualize how, how that manifests? I wholeheartedly agree with Matt. Again, my whole career has been devoted to how people can maximize their abilities and fulfill their potential, which again was why I was so shocked that motivation wasn't accorded a more central role, not just in neuroscience, but in psychology in general. And so I would say one of my and maybe our crusades, so to speak, is to really give motivation its rightful place in the choosing of goals, the initiation of goal pursuit. For a last question, we like to ask, what is your advice for young scholars in the field who are just starting out with research in psychology? And I think 
there is a specific angle here that might be interesting because you are challenging received wisdom in the field. And when you start out with research, you might say, oh my God, there's all these papers and I don't know what's going on. How could I ever make a contribution? But maybe you are at an advantage when you're just starting out because you have not yet soaked up all the knowledge in the field. You are not already like fixed and have your certain, certain mindset. Instead, you have this outside angle where you might say, well, all of these people are studying this, but it doesn't really make sense. What does this have to do with reality? So how do you think about advice for people who are just starting out with research in psychology? Yeah, I think absolutely that's so important in a sense to almost have a beginner's mind, whether you're at the actual beginning of your journey or at a, a later phase. And what I try to do oftentimes is kind of block out what seems to be kind of the fads in the field and really come back to, in my heart, what's important to me, what excites me, just as we were talking about. What grips me where even if I wasn't doing this as my job, I would still be thinking about. And yeah, it just makes me want to, as a psychologist, understand myself and people around me better. And so it really comes back down to almost authenticity in a sense. Like, what do I just care about as opposed to what do I think I should be doing to get a job or a position or what have you, or to publish in, you know, whatever journal. It's really just what excites me just without thinking about outcomes, but what's the outcome itself in terms of just studying it, where you don't need any other rewards, you know, so to speak. And so I think that's part of the advice is really like this self-trust in just investigating what really appeals to me. And then from there, you can see what have other people done in terms of what's been published and what are the open questions. And it does, in a sense, doesn't matter if it's controversial or not. It doesn't have to go against the grain all the time. Some ideas do, sometimes some don't. Sometimes it's just a little bit of an expansion that's really important that brings a field from a little bit of haziness to a crystal clear perspective on what's happening. And so I think really it's that just emerges naturally when you're crystal clear for yourself on just what do I care about? And then you just follow the breadcrumbs in terms of what paper seems interesting to read, learning a little bit more, a little bit more, and not worrying about mastering everything right away, but almost like building a little foundation of just what's this little thing, you know, little area that I care about. And I'll add a little more knowledge, add a little more knowledge. So it's not like you need to embrace the, an entire field all at once. It's just a little bit at a time, like taking one step and becoming a little more clear on, okay, this, this is how I think about this question. What, how are other people thinking? What's, what's left to do that might be super interesting? And always just coming back to yourself as opposed to just some external idea of what's now popular or what should be done. But instead, like, what do I want to do? I could not agree more. I think Matt has said it all. I'll just say part of it again. <laughs> um, first of all, many years ago, I invented this thing I call the bathtub test. And I say it to my students, if you don't think about your topic in the bathtub, it's or shower as the case may be, it's not your topic. Not that you should be working all the time, but it should be something that interests you greatly. I also want to echo Matt's suggestion that you trust yourself. You should not over-admire your elders or 
the gurus and think, well, everything they say and think is right. It didn't make sense to me, but I guess it's right. If it doesn't make sense to you, think about that. How doesn't it make sense? To, uh, what's your alternative view? How might you go about discussing and developing your alternative view? The other thing is kind of the idea of, in the end, what would you like to contribute? It's not that you have to have a whole big vision of it. And I agree with Matt. You approach something step by step, piece by piece, understand it more deeply. Your contribution grows out of that deepening understanding. It doesn't have to be, as Matt said, something brand new. Huge contributions are made by putting existing knowledge together. Einstein put energy, speed of light, mass. People knew those. He put them together. The periodic table. People knew elements. Put it together. And then the other thing is, it doesn't have to be something that sweeps you away right away. Because for me, the more I got into something and the more I explored it, the more enthusiastic I became about the whole enterprise of, say, motivation and its impact on people's development. Yeah, and there's actually one other idea that just occurred to me as well. And that is like a broader kind of perspective on like a field that you might be working in. Like, let's say it's just psychology, but this really applies broadly. To see it not that you're like this little fish in this big competitive kind of world where everybody's striving to have the next big breakthrough but really just knowing that it's a collaborative effort. Really, nobody is making brilliant breakthroughs on their own. And I think it really helps to see it from a, a cooperative perspective. Almost the way that our amygdala and prefrontal cortex cooperate is there's so many people that will be like-minded with, with whatever you're interested in. And it's really helpful to find those people. And then it's this excitement synergy that can happen where it's like, oh, yeah, this is like really exciting. And there's everybody has gaps in their knowledge. But when you're together, there's something really special that can happen. And even just being in that mind frame of working with others and wanting to get knowledge from them as opposed to just proving how much you know um, or thinking that you're just this little island who has to do it all alone, it really just changes the way that I think ideas are formed in the first place. So instead of being very narrow about, okay, what's the breakthrough? How can I get there before somebody else? It almost like relaxes the mind to think, okay, I'm working with others. Together, we'll do something amazing. Who knows what it will be, but it will be amazing if we're just working together and trusting ourselves. And so it kind of takes the pressure off. And I think that's really critical. We know in the creativity literature, almost have like this relaxed perspective to allow new ideas to come to the forefront as opposed to having a little too much top-down control, where it's like you're trying to force something to happen. Uh, but I think it only happens if there's this cooperative stance, as opposed to seeing like everybody in competition for jobs, and you have to be the first to get somewhere. That just really constrains and stresses, and it doesn't need to be that way. The field, really, my experience has been there's so many wonderful people, and we just want to help each other. And I found it to be incredibly personally supportive. And it's often not talked about in that way. Academia is often almost seen as this, you know, survival of the fittest jungle type place. 
but that really has not been my experience. And maybe that is out there, but you don't have to fit into that. I think it's really, there's so many people who are just fascinated by deep questions and are really supportive mentors. And I think those are the people to look out to and to know that they are out there and um, and that you can be just so supported and and just that there is that space to kind of incubate ideas and it's not a race. And it's really more about allowing just your mind to go wild in different directions and then come to some crystallized perspective, but not forcing it, just allowing it to be or to express the excitement of being a scientist, which is one of the most amazing jobs in the world. It's like, how lucky is that? It, it's, it shouldn't be a stressful endeavor. It really should just be like this blessing that every day we get to think about new things and how do people work or how does whatever work that you're interested in. And for me, that really changes then how you approach whatever specific task you're doing or learning some new material. If it's from that background of, wow, I'm lucky to do this. And then it's almost like your brain is just in a different state of receptivity and ability to be novel and put connections together. And that's part of where our paper came from. Just new connections coming together for Kill and I. And we both think it's one of the best things that we've done. And I think it, it comes from that sort of mindset. Well, amen. Thank you <laughs> to the two of you. Thank you, Matt, um, for this wonderful summary of going full circle from what we have learned from your paper and how we can incorporate that into it, you know, combined with a positive view of human nature, which I'm always here for. And thank you, Carol. I really love the point of your love for an idea it doesn't have to be love at first sight, right? You don't have to immediately fall for it. It can grow over time and it can be just powerful. We are certainly running up against time, so we will have to end this conversation here. But thank you so much for making the time and joining us. Thank you, Eric. It was delightful to be here. Yeah, wonderful, Eric. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. We would love to hear what you think of this episode or if you have any other suggestions for future guests or topics for the podcast. You can reach us at stanfordpsychpodcast at gmail.com. You can also connect with us on Twitter at stanfordpsypod. Finally, if you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere so more people can find us. Thank you so much.